Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome back to Green Lit. I'm Alex Legion. I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Gibson. Hello, everyone. We have uh, Rose Mead Hart joining us, storied entertainment attorney that has worked in all facets of media, including music, film, TV, social media, and now emerging tech, which I'll let her tell us about, including AI, blockchain, and others. Welcome, Rose. Thanks, Alex. So Rose and I uh, first met working together, as a lot of folks in our business do. And I was brought in on a show by a mutual friend of ours who was running the show, but was too busy. And so I was taking over day to day. Rose was the production legal on it called Summer Break. And I remember thinking, my job is hard because there's a lot of moving parts, but her job was impossible because in law, a lot of things are kind of decided by precedent. And because we were trying to integrate social media into real-time content, she was sort of having to either invent the law or make it up along the way. But you were nice enough to say earlier that we kind of found ourselves being kindred spirit. As we go into more and more integration of the digital money and the digital players into more traditional narrative content, you start to see a clash of cultures. And I feel like why Rose and I bonded was because even though our corporate masters in that job were more of a digital sort of background, they wanted to make a reality show, a traditional like TV reality show. And Rose and I come more from the traditional side, so a little bit more no-nonsense. I think even maybe the New York background might have helped, but (laughs) there's just a lot of it's just a different world working with digital people that want to do content. Would you say, Rose? Oh, 100%. And Alex, that was such a great way to meet someone because it's just sort of trial by fire. And you immediately know whether or not you can collaborate on a project. Because as you know, the show was massively successful, but also innovative in it that uh, I've been working a lot in the UK. So now everything is innovative. Um, so uh, that show was breaking all kinds of rules, right? It's essentially a follow-on doc on multimedia various platforms. And we were posting episodes in almost real time. So we were putting up three episodes a week. And the show was wildly successful. Across five seasons, we did a billion views. And I'm not sure anybody else has had that kind of success with uh, you know, bringing a traditional approach to the digital space. And it was super fun. But as you said, you know, we had corporate people from a big brand sponsor. We had tech people. And then we had regular entertainment people. And we had to get everybody on the same page super quickly and do all the other things you do when you're making content. So it was a great adventure. I had a super fun time and I would have again, 10 out of 10, would have again. I mean, did you always want to be in entertainment? What what came first, the law or the entertainment part? That's an excellent question. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer because it suits my skill set. It has a lot to do with reading and writing and being persuasive and analyzing and solving problems. So these are all the things that I find super fun. And then as a young person, I also acted. So I acted professionally as a young person. And then I got recruited in college to take a a BFA. But I knew that that was never the life for me, right? Especially as a young woman in the 80s, like 
there wasn't a lot of uh, like amazing opportunities. And as an actor, you have to A, look for work all the time, which is not for me. B, uh, stand where you're told to stand, say what you're told to say, and uh, C, make people happy, right? Be good at politics. And these are none of the things that interest me. So I was having none of being an actor, but I thought it was super fun way to, to pass time and I was good at it. So I began to work professionally. So when I went to undergraduate school, I was studying for pre-law and I took an acting class as one of my general ed studies. And they recruited me because they were just starting a BFA program, a four-year BFA. And I thought, all right, well, I'll go to your thing. Like, that's fine. They said, oh, there's a little scholarship. And, you know, where I'm from, they give you like 1500 bucks or whatever. Who cares? Like not money that's going to change your life. So I do the audition and then they're like, oh, we're going to give you a full tuition scholarship for the rest of your degree if you take your BFA. I was like, interesting. Who doesn't want a free degree, right? And I figured out I could take all of my pre-law on the side. So I did both. So I knew that I'd become a lawyer. I was also training to become a fresh professional actor. Every year they were cutting people out of the program, like, you'll never be an actor. I was like, ah, ah, ah. yes, I'll never be an actor, but I'm still here. Um, so they didn't cut me from the program. I finished my BFA. But during that process, I was taking these pre-law classes and I was going to all my acting studies, right? And the people in pre-law were like, how can you even speak to these people? They're such weirdos. And I thought, aha, that's it. And that's when I knew that it's my job to translate between art and commerce because I can understand both the creative side and then the more practical business side. So long answer to this is the work that I meant to do. Like if I came up in a construction family, I'd go into real estate law. But it's the I knew the business and I understood the business, but I wasn't interested in being on camera. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I Going back to what we were saying about tech and... Uh... The, the collision of tech and, and traditional media going on around us now, I've often found that even on that job, the summer break job, some of it was because I had experience with YouTube and entertainment people have used me as sort of a tech whisperer and tech people have used me as a Hollywood whisperer at, at times. And it's, it's that same thing. It's not all, but as a culture, technology people have a certain way of thinking, speaking, and valuing content, whereas entertainment people are very much more artistic. And as you said, the, like, as lawyers would describe artists, like chaotic and weird, right? So, you know, bringing a little bit of soul to the zeros and ones is, is important, especially now. I mean, I think we can pretty much just nail the, you know, coffin shut and say that tech one. I mean, Netflix is the dominant platform. I mean, streamers pretty much determine the fate of our business now, would you say, Ryan? I don't think tech, I, I, it's happy, I'm happy to see, yes, in some ways I do think tech took over, but really I, I do think the physical medium of going, and maybe I'm misunderstanding what your question is, but I think it's, I'm glad to see the theaters filling up again. And I just think that the traditional studio system is still a strong system. I could be completely bananas crazy, but you know, I, I think the pendulum will eventually swing the other way for Netflix. I don't know how Netflix takes on Disney in the end, because I just look at the quality of what Netflix is putting out as opposed to what Disney and Marvel well, is putting I'll, out. I'll tell you how, man. They're going to mail out DVDs again. They're swinging it back around. Oh, then if that's the play. The Netflix. They learn from AOL. Does every does anyone over a certain age remember how many AOL starter discs you got in the mail for like exactly, <laughs> exactly. 
No, you're right. I'm not, I'm, first of all, it's not a quality conversation I'm talking about. I'm merely just pointing out like the money, the deluge of money. Like I was trying to explain to a civilian the other day, Ryan, that the absolute ridiculous scale and scope of like a Ryan Murphy deal. Oh, or uh, what's her name? Shonda. Shonda Look, good on all of them. I agree. Get money, right? Anybody can do it and has the the juice, like, of course, get what you can. But I, you know, that's a tech that, that, you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to say something that's not in a, in, to be offensive to anyone, but tech is, is just another in a long line of dumb money that comes to Hollywood looking to either, I don't know if they want to get paid or late or what, but you know, the, the economics of Google are a lot more efficient than the economics of YouTube, by the way, you know, like internally Google sees YouTube as like a, a write-off basically you, you and I, and most of the world see it as like this cultural MTV level, like media event, but Google that makes way more money off AdWords and other pedestrian things. So when I see dumb money come to Hollywood, you know, maybe it's the Japanese in the eighties or it's the, you know, the sheiks in the seventies or, you know, whatever, Transamerica buying Coca-Cola, buying Columbia, blah, blah, blah. Like every 10 years, like a new group of giant money people come through and Hollywood is only too happy to take their money. So yeah, you could be right. Maybe Netflix will go home, you know, like from Vegas with empty pockets and like, you know, confused look on their face. But for now, they have more money than God and they are completely throwing off the curve for everybody else. So not only does any other studio have to try to match three, four hundred million dollar deals for big showrunners or big filmmakers, there's no way they can make that money back because their business models are subscription based. They're happy to just throw stuff around. If I'm a, if I'm still trying to be universal and like make money in theaters, like I can't compete with that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Because it's tech. It, it, I get you on the dumb, dumb money piece, but I think tech brings a lot more than money, right? This time, so I think perhaps. And yeah. and you know, to your point about is it becoming you know, just a ones and zeros game, obviously content will always be king, right? Like Hollywood will always exist because there always has to be more, you know, weirdos, more creative people to think up the next metaverse, right? So what Mm -hmm. does that look like? But I think we're going to see more collaboration between tech and creative than we have seen ever before. And I have to tell you, I love all this stuff. I love OTT. I love streamers and TikTok and all these little weird things. Although, you know, I'll tell you, I never, I never loved that little short second, uh, seven second one. Vine. But all the rest of it, I really love it. But so all that to say, <laughs> like, I think, I think we're at a, we're at a paradigm shift. We've been there for a while and now we're just sort of integrating it. Can Netflix beat Disney? I don't know. Why do we still have Coke and Pepsi? Like they're two completely yeah. redundant things. Like we had two asteroid movies at the exact same time. We certainly didn't need that. We, so. I don't see that one ever puts the other out of business. I'd like to see a little bit more transparency on the data side. I'd like to see more of the analytics come out of like a, a streamer so that we know, you know, we know what our box office numbers are, but we don't know what our Netflix numbers are. You actually started in entertainment on the, on the uh, music side, correct? Yeah, I started the music business um, mostly because I went to school in Boston and there was a lot more of a music scene happening back then in Boston. And I was able to work with, and so this is a, an important junction in my career, right? So I did a externship where I worked full-time with a law firm while I was in school. 
and their big client was New Kids on the Block. So I was lawyer 56 on New Kids on the Block trademark licensing. So I was the person in charge of managing all of the licenses, um, just as from an admin point of view, obviously there were proper lawyers watching over me. But what I what was interesting to me is A, as a young person, you're like a boy band. No, like this is not why I want to be in this business. This is gross. And then the ne- next movement of that is like, wow, this is some really interesting work unpacking how all these rights work and, and what does a brand mean and how do you protect a brand? And then the next layer of, this is a lot of money. It was a billion dollars. And this is, a, this is the late 80s, early 90s. We did a billion dollars in merchandising. It's so much money, more than 800 million, more than 900 million. Like that was a lot. And I got to do a lot of great licensing, right? So we put the brand on anything you can imagine, pillowcases, t-shirts, you know, obviously tour merch, but a video game, um, animated TV show, so many things, buttons, pins, notebooks, whatever. And all the result of all of that was making a lot of money. And it was, it was a great experience. And I had to realize at that point that my personal taste, what I like and enjoy from a creative standpoint as a viewer or listener, it doesn't really matter. That's not the same as an economically viable property. So it was really great to learn that early in my career and really make that separation. Like, so it's not about the, the music artists or the films that I like, but it's about what, uh, what's commercially viable and in what niche. So I thought that was really a great start to a, to a career. And then, but eventually you got sort of, well, first of all, that my vision of you working in that early days was just basically sending out cease and desist letters to every like factory <laughs> in China. But uh, that, was a ti- not- uh, that wasn't as popular then. So that was a tiny bit of it. But more often than that, we would be, I would be going to the band actually to get specific prototypes approved. So, you know, it was the late 80s. So it was like no neon green, no pink. Like there was a brand book, like a, a several inch binder of what, how the brand should manifest, what fonts, what colors, what, what photographs are approved and making sure that only approved images and likenesses were going out, making sure that like, oh, we gave these rights to Mattel. So we can't give these rights to this next person and keeping track of like all of those licenses in a way that, that made sense. Is that the, is that the record label that's making that brand book? Is that the management that, that old? It was that one dude. Yeah. That old pederast in Florida. I mean, yeah, is that your dude. Um, so the um, at that point, it wasn't the record label because the rec- it was the band themselves. So management was coordinating it, but it was band themselves. Mm-hmm. They kept their like. So the, yo Rose, yo Rose, no neon pink, yo. Yeah. So like it was that. all, and then it, it was. I have to remember they were hugely famous, so they're traveling all around the whole world to like one narrow window when I can ask like my six questions to my point person who is out on the road with the band, the road manager, or, you know, the weird off time that I would have direct interaction with the band for the, but the most part, it was not them personally. It was, um, you know, like a road manager or tour manager. And you have that little narrow, like, I need these six things approved. And we didn't, it's not like I could text them the images. So it was in the olden days. So, so Rose. Yeah. Tell me this. Tell, tell us this. <laughs> what's it? What's it like to be on the new kid bus just going around the country? <laughs> I have to tell you, I was never on their bus, but I have on, been on many, many tour buses. And it's usually uh, interesting, surprising, and tedious. It's a lot like being on a movie set. <laughs> Rose, you, like, 
like this is this is a podcast. Like you seriously could have taken it to the limit on that answer. I mean, we'll accept the answer, but you, you I, I mean, I wanted, I wanted I wanted some bad touch stories. I wanted some right. like I, some I wanted good like you had this, some good um, touch stories, some face backing, You know, yeah, this, you know, you, you I, really. I, I do still have a, an obligation to conf- confidentiality. It's kind of a bummer because I could write a great book about what? something. But much more of that came out of uh, my years in hip hop after that, which some crazy madness, oh including oh, talent is not showing bro. up where it's supposed to be. And we send the fire department and they break down the hotel door. And yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, oh, Rose, the, bu- the, books, the books that you can write. <laughs> I can't tell anybody's secrets. How? Yeah, but how long? Uh, how long does the confidentiality agreement really last? Are you you're, are you being you being serious about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's also the avoidance of impropriety, right? So I'm licensed in New York and California. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, seriously. Like, uh, unlike uh, other members of the bar, like Riley Young Podcast. We'll have you on as like a secret guest. We won't reveal your identity. Yeah, can we garble her voice? We'll garble your voice. We can do that. And then, by the way, right. everybody will figure it out, like, eventually. Because it's such a tiny I little was, business. I was on the tour bus with Most annoying thing is my, having to wait for talent who decided to get a haircut at the time of your meeting. And you're like, right. okay, I'm here to see the talent. And they're like, yeah, he's oh. with his barber. Really? The notorious, the notorious times when large talent makes 200 or 300 people wait hours for them is unbelievable. Like, oh, yeah. unbelievable. Going to a huge meeting at Viacom and across the street, there was a big, I think it was Virgin Records at that time. It was a giant record store. And like, we just were buying PlayStation games. And I was like, we really need to go to this meeting. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And like spending like $1,000 on video games, like in the olden days when you bought discs of, of video games. Right. People still do that, Rose. I visualize your life, Rose, as like run, like like almost famous. They're they're being led to the stage. You're running alongside with like papers for them to sign, and they're just like, "Whatever, Rose, we got to rock." And then they go out, and the whole like stadium is like cheers, and you're like, "Whoa, is me?" I yeah. I just it's Some, hilarious. That happens. That that is not uh, flattering, but me, also not um, inaccurate. <laughs> Well, Ryan, I mean, Ryan kind of brought it back around, which is, did that sort of crazy, because I'm sure law in, in, in that sector is the same as any other, like sort of entry level job, which is they're hiring you for your, you know, youthful exuberance and, you know, exhausted, inexhaustible energy and sort of you're happy to be there face and you haven't quite been burned out yet. I mean, did that, all those misadventures and sort of talent things that make you look go like, wow, I really am the talent whisperer for the legal people. Like, did that translate to all media? I mean, is talent talent? I guess is what Ryan yeah. was saying. Is, it, is yeah. a big movie star that we have to deal with exactly like Jay-Z or whoever. They just, they're not like us. Yes, right? that's 100% true. Talent is talent. And it doesn't matter what your media is. So it, your media could even be tech, right? That's why I, I worked with a lot of people in yes. tech as well, because they are super odd, right? Because they're, it's a much more linear sort of approach, but with a sprinkle of maybe the spectrum on top at times. But mm-hmm. are you, well, when you say tech talent, are you talking about influencers? Or are you talking about like CEOs of like startups? No, real like tech. What? People, yeah. People who create, you know, yeah. NFTs or yeah, yeah. That, that have, you know, design 
technology. So here's my question, uh, Rose, which is pertinent to the name of the show. Was there a seminal moment in your life, your legal life, where you were like, I can't believe I'm here. This is something that I always wondered if this was going to happen. And this, I've truly made it to someplace I, I always dreamed about, but I, I, I didn't know if I would actually achieve it. Is there a story that you can tell that you can specifically remember looking back now? Where you were like, oh, I can't, I can't believe this is happening right now. Like your greenlit moment, your moment where you're like, I mean, being lawyer fifty six is cool and all, but was was there was that the moment, or was there something grander or bigger where you were like, wow, all of my work has paid off? Yeah, no, no, it certainly wasn't the beginning. Like I, that's why I try to be humble about the beginning. That you know, you you really have to you know sweep the floor and put in the work before you can because the only way to learn this business is being in this business so you've got to intern or apprentice 100%. you have to work with somebody else there's there are no books you can learn there are no courses you can take you must be taught to be an entertainment lawyer by another entertainment lawyer essentially sitting with them watching them negotiate doing markups of contracts having them you know reject your suggestions and laugh at you and then you, you gradually come up. Before I left law school, I had five internships and clerkships that I had completed in the entertainment business. I don't know anybody that's done that many. Let's take a short break. Thanks for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. We'll be right back. So you have to be really willing to put in that work. But I suppose, and I have to tell you, like, I still don't know that there's a moment where like you've arrived in this business because you're as good as your last hits, right? But I got a couple of ideas that might've been that. So way back in the 90s, like before I was 30, I was on a project. So I started out, as we said, I started out mostly in the music business, but always the guy who does other, right? Like we had to license a satellite once for a cable programming service. People don't even know no one knows what that is anymore. Even, uh-huh. even when I started, even when I started licensing a satellite or or getting satellite time because there was no internet and it was so expensive and no one no no one knows about that anymore. Right. So it's I like I, I'm the guy who would do that dealer. Like figure out how to license the satellite in like 1994, 96, right? And um, yeah. So in, in order to do that as a lawyer, you have to know how does satellites work. What is redundancy? What do I need them to do for me? What do I get? What are they giving me? Can I sublicense it? Right? So that was super fun. So I've always been the guy that did the other. So in in the 90s, I had the chance to work for Frank Sinatra on his 80th birthday. And now probably they put me on this account because it's a big celebrity, but not a very big moneymaker probably for the firm, right? So it probably wasn't going to be like massive checks to justify the, you know, the, the top of the firm. So they gave it to me. So what was cool about it is it was a, a live event, a TV network special, an album, and a charity event. And, you know, Frank Sinatra. So you had all these celebrities coming in to perform, but you have all those different deals, right? You have your network broadcast deal, your major rate label record deal, all the music publishing pieces, and the charity and the live event. And you know, pretty high profile client that has to be taken care of appropriately, right? So I think I think I remember this. This was was this a CBS thing? I have to tell you, I don't know who the network was. Okay. It, it was a network. It was the Chesterfield Broadcast Network in nineteen sixty two. 
Brought to you by Marlboro. I tell you for sure, it was ABC, NBC, or CBS. <laughs> it was smoking a lucky. So we, right. uh, so I do all those deals, right? And then the big moment comes, and I'm not 30 yet, right? So this is kind of a big deal, right? So I, they, I get to fly to Los Angeles, which they never let me go anywhere. I just, they're just like back to your cubicle. Although I had a proper office, not a cubicle. They, so I fly to Los Angeles. I get to take my mom with me because. You know, up to this point, I'm doing all hip hop and rap and R&B. And my mom is like, I don't know who any of those people are. Shaggy, what? So. Well, I God did, knows what they would have done to her mother. <laughs> I mean, she could have been. Oh, they, I, been the, the maternal culture is so strong in urban music. They would have been so sweet and lovely. I do take my mom. You're right. You're right. I do, I do take my mom right. a lot of places. But so I finally get to take her to something like she actually cares about. Right. So this is kind of like a big right. deal. Woo-hoo. I get to go fly out there. It's at the shrine. It's a big black tie event. We're all dressed up and fancy. And so we go to the, we go to the event, right? So this feels like, you know, this is my deal. Like from start to finish, I did every one of these deals. It's a hundred percent mine. Um, and I feel pretty good about myself until I go backstage and they're like, uh, yeah, we don't see your name on the list. I'm like, I'm the lawyer. They just sort of laugh at me like, yeah, sure you are kid. <laughs> and then some big cigar smoking head of music distribution company, also my client rolls up. And of course he's just this big, uh, robust guy smoking a cigar in a tuxedo. And he's like, what's the problem, kid? And that's how I get in. That's how I get backstage because finally I get things like, ah, she's with me. And so it's all that to say, like in this business, as good as you have it, as much as you've accomplished, you're still just pretty much nobody. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, like you're the shit and then you're nobody. So, and and as the lawyer, you know, we're, we should have the backseat. My client does not want to see my face on any magazine. They're not interested. They don't want my name in the headline. They don't want any publicity about me. Everything is about them until it goes wrong and then it's about me and I get fired. But for the most part, your, your client does not want you out front. So, but I do think that's one of those moments where you're like, yeah, man, I did this. I made this all happen. And then you're like, and you are? Oh, okay. Yeah, great. Okay, thanks. <laughs> the guy with the clipboard is like more powerful than you. But at one point I realized in the, you know, in the probably around 2005 or 2000, in that, in that range, I represented personally 10% of Billboard's top 100. I was like, that's kind of cool. That kind of seems like a big deal. <laughs> like, because it's not a female dominated profession. It's not, you know, I'm not Jewish. So that's also, you know, puts me in the minority in my field. So it was kind of weird. And I was like, wow, 10%, that seems kind of cool. But, you know, nobody else really noticed that. I mean, it's getting a lot of calls. But I got, I think one of the most things that seemed like, oh, you're, the, you're really happening was not true. Somebody had called me probably in 2000, 2003 and, we, and said, I understand you booked the Warp Tour. I said, really? Where'd you hear that? Because it was not true. I didn't tell them, but, and they were super excited. So I got a ton of calls that returned that week and that, uh, for that couple of months and people were calling me out of the woodwork, very eager to speak with me. And I thought that was super fun, but also not true. Because at the time it was the largest music festival it was touring it was the the thing to be on so as, as, oh warped was huge for so long yeah yeah it was a big deal and uh so but i just died when the person was like oh i heard you booked the warp tour i said oh isn't that interesting how'd you hear that <laughs> i wanted to give you praise generally and specifically you know working with you changed my opinion about entertainment lawyers because i had been in the business for a while and i hadn't had all the greatest experience with them and what I came away 
And that's usually on the entertainment lawyer, just sort of bureaucracy side, right? That could be uh, business affairs at a studio or network. That could even be my own attorneys with their sort of like lackadaisical like work ethic. You know, these are the studio like inside cats that work from like, you know, 1030 to five (laughs) and take five months off a year and make the most money. Right. So I don't have a lot of patience for them because they're not uh, entrepreneurial and they're not about building new things from vapor. They're about maintaining infrastructure for their own convenience. Right. They have a drawer with the form of your contract in their desk and they get around to typing your name on it. So I had a pretty sour uh, sort of attitude about entertainment in uh, law, law and entertainment. And then I met you and we worked together and you were so entrepreneurial and so producerial. And I mean, in the best way, like, you know, having to think on your feet, having to create situations that maybe weren't, you know, written in stone by some other lawyer somewhere and just, like you said, originally problem solving, which is what producer filmmakers do, producers, directors. It's every member of a crew making a film or a TV show is problem solving in their specific lane. So like it made me start calling when people now, it's a, just so you know, behind closed doors, we all bitch about lawyers, right? So of course uh, I do it myself. Damn lawyers, now, screwing everything up. Right. And now I'm the guy that stops and says, guys, guys, I want you to think about who made a film without a lawyer. I want you to tell me about you deliver a film and the dump truck of docs that you're expected to hand over. It's not just the pretty pictures on the screen, right? I mean, Ryan, yeah, how long products you can sell. I only bitch about lawyers when I have to when I read their work in a document for a director, or a document for a director, or no. A document for a casting agent includes her credit as an executive producer, and I have to change it. <laughs> that pisses me off. Because they just didn't take enough time going through the boilerplate to change the thing, and then that makes, that makes me mad. But no, uh, I yeah, fully... I, yeah. I, re- I respect everything that they do. I don't, you know, for anyone out there who's wondering, I don't do anything without... Uh, I have my own personal lawyer. Uh, I know Alex has his own personal lawyer. It is some of the best money that I've ever spent. And although I don't, he also, I, I also wish that I could pay a little extra to my lawyer so he could also be a therapist in a way because he would, because I ask him questions that I don't think he's comfortable asking. Like, uh, you know, I know that I'm not, you know, I know I'm not big as big as I want to be yet. So I know I can't play this a certain way, but you know, I I ask him, I ask him judgment questions and I make him answer and he gets really uncomfortable, but I still make him do it. Let's take a short break. Thanks for joining us on how I got greenlit. We'll be right back. And we're back. Thanks for joining us on How I Got Greenlight. You know, as an entertainment lawyer, we're always flirting with that line of like, you have to serve the whole client, right? And you have to serve the client's agenda. And, you know, sometimes you tell the client when they're being stupid or when they should be pushing harder or, you know, that they're just acting like crazy people. Yeah, in 
in the last deal I I did, I said I I said I should I ask for this certain thing in the contract? And he said he goes, Ryan, you're you're doing really well. You're making progress step by step. You, I, I, you know, as a you know, you haven't been a client of mine for more than four five years. But he said every year you've been making strides. He goes, but you're not you're not coming off like the Star Wars franchise. So you might want to, <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. You might want to. That's what you need. You yeah, are paying absolutely. for that. You're paying for business judgment. So actually, I've been thinking about like what's an entertainment lawyer do because to to um. To Alex's point, a lot of people think what we do is forms. Like there's a, it's classic. I I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is. Every time somebody's like, oh, don't you just have a form for that? Like, actually, that's not how any of this works unless you're like at a cable programming service or a studio or, you know, they have like, here's your appearance release, right? Like they have a bunch of forms they blessed. And by the way- Yeah, everything is tailored. Everything is tailored. And I've, I've been the person from the outside as outside counsel working for those cable nets writing those documents. So that's the kind of cool part is I've been on both sides of the deal, but circling back to serving the whole client, it's your lawyer's job to educate you about the business because you've made how many, you know, if you're successful, you made five, six, 10 films, right? You know how many films I've been on? You know how many albums I've been on? Like I've done a lot of deals and I have that depth of knowledge about the business, what's possible, what's ambitious, what should we push for? And also you have the the intangibles, right? When you're in a negotiation, I know who I can press and how hard I can press them. You know, I, I, I've been on specific deals and the network says, we're not going to give you a big deal like so-and-so. And, and I, then I keep pushing where I can, you know, and I've had, to, I've had crazy bosses where they may ask me, make me ask for crazy things that could break the deal. Like I had a, a boss who told me once I had, to, I had to ask a record label to give us a party at a Yankee Stadium. I was like, it's completely superfluous, ridiculous, bullying ask. But I had to do it. I had to find a way to do it in a way that didn't blow my deal because I didn't want to blow the deal. Right. But yeah, so your lawyer should help you. They should counsel you. They should tell you like when well, right. you're being so they're, crazy, they're, but also push you. I have clients who won't push hard enough for themselves because they think they're not going to get the job. They're like, right. oh, I don't want to make anybody mad. Yeah, exactly. And, and I see that a lot with people that are very talented and actually even experienced. And they're like, but I don't want to, what if I want to work for them? It's like that, pe- that person will be long gone. That institution will be there, but that executive will not be there in three years. Don't worry about it. Or anyway. nobody, look, you don't ask, you don't get, right? And you don't have to well, sure. pound the table and yell at people. I think that's the, that's the piece of the finesse in how do you negotiate, right? But what's your, what's your lawyer really doing for you? Advocating for you, teaching you rights and responsibilities, solving problems for you, negotiating your documents and your deals, right? But more than that, I think your lawyer gives you gravitas, right? And they give you credibility in the space. That's why there's only a handful of us. As much as you're willing to talk, maybe just in theory and not in, in specific. But one of the things that maybe people outside the business don't know is that traditionally when you have a lawyer, you either work, they take 5% of your gross or you pay them out, right? And I think most people can relate to paying an attorney hourly, but that was something new for me. Like, oh, wait, I don't have to pay you cash. And they're like, no. We're going to take 5% of your deals, right? And so like I have a deal that's now 20 years old. Yeah. And that, and that lawyer is going to line up for a payday. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's the, I mean, entertainment is different than some of the other businesses. So we generally get paid either hourly on a percentage or on a flat fee, right? So if you just have like, hey, could you just, 
you know, I'm going well, to acquire this property. What's good, what's good and bad. I mean, you fight harder when it's 5% of your nut, right? I mean, Meh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's a really common model in Hollywood, much more than New York. But so the downside to that, I think, is now you've got the lawyer looking at the size of the deal. And yep. that's not necessarily the lawyer's primary concern, right? Because you might get a million dollars for your film, but you gave up all your subsidiary rights or whatever. That's just an example. So the money is not the most important thing about every deal, depending on where you are in your career, right? Like the money is not as important if you don't get any kind of creative input or approval over your wardrobe or whatever it is you need. And, and your client has their own perspective, right? Because they might take something for low money if they can direct if it's something. Elite, right. If it's a career jump. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So you're saying... Right. It, a, fi- a percentage relationship might just make you think about dollars and cents and not about a career path for your client and for yourself. Right. And, and I do have a great story on that, which I'll tell. Um, yeah. In, in 100 years ago, I represented Mary J. Blige at the beginning of her career. It was not quite the beginning. She was already a platinum artist um, and we had released My Life. And she was uh, so waiting to exhale. The soundtrack was being put together. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Um, and somebody came to us for, with an offer for waiting to exhale to be on the soundtrack and the manager rejected it. And I thought that's insane. Uh, because Terry, Terry McMillan was the, like the hottest writer at that time and a black woman. And everybody is the, the, the reason the manager rejected it was it was a flat fee based on number of albums sold. Right. So like the Whitney Houston would get X, Mary J. Blige would get X, you know, this person would get Y depending on your career sales, which just seemed to be a fair but random way to do something, right? To make an album. And it wasn't, it wasn't an incredibly lucrative deal. And so the manager rejected it based on 20% of what my client makes is how I'm going to allocate my interest in various projects and didn't look at if Mary wasn't on that project, she would be like the only interesting black woman who was not on the album at that time. Like it's a, it would be like everybody else is at the party and you're not. It would also have been the first time that she worked with Babyface Edmonds, right? Big producer at that time. And so even though most lawyers would not do this, I stepped in and I said, I think that's the wrong decision. I think you should make this, I think you should make this and explained why. And they did, they did do the project and they recorded Not Gonna Cry, which got nominated for a Grammy. So, and it was her first time working with that producer. So if you can get paid to work for, work on a project that's going to further your goals People who are getting paid on a percentage may or may not recognize those opportunities based on the number of zeros behind the offer. Most creative people also have a talent manager, right? So that person is also thinking about career growth as well. And I'm not saying that charging on a percentage is a terrible idea. I just, I've heard there's conversation around, does that create a conflict of interest between the lawyer and the client? Because lawyer's going to want the biggest number possible. But I also, but I give my brothers and sisters at the bar more credit than that. And I think that you want to keep the client growing and happy in order to keep your practice growing and happy. So I think that they will do the right thing ultimately, but nobody counts your money like you. So. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is uh, there is this weird in the same way that say lawyers and logical folk look at artists as weird artists, look at them as weird as well. Money, uh, the law, the business side of the business, they, they shy away from, and they're just like, Hey, I just want to make my little art and give it to the world. It's like, yeah, but then that's why you get screwed in your deals because even your managers, your 
lawyers are not looking out for your best interest. The only best interest should be your own. And you need to get educated on what's happening around you. You know, the, I would yes, probably, the, the lawyer's got to make that interest. Like you have a well, narrow opportunity to, to the lawyer goes right? through everything. Yeah. You cover everything in our world. Yeah. Right. So we need you to be out there. And that's my point to our, my fellow filmmakers. As I say that Rose is as much an important crew member as the DP, because if we can't get the permit to shoot in the, cathedral, there's no pretty picture. If we can't get the actor's deals done, there's no money. If we can get the money deal done, I mean, it's all law. We live in, you know, maybe it's just Western civilization, but you are the master of all, you have all keys to all doors that uh, we don't. Production counsel, by the way, is super hard to get for the most part because no one wants to do this work. It's kind of terrible (laughs) work. It's all consuming. It's, you know, basically 24-7. details. Ryan, Ryan, speak to your, you know, you're producing a film now. How many docs, how often do you interface with your production council and how how much documentation has to funnel through you and them to deliver a film? It's not a variable. It's it only, the only variable really is cast and how heavy the cast is. It's but just I'm saying in a typical indie film that just three calls a minimum three calls a day. And that's on an independent. That's on an independent film, and, yeah. and countless and emails. About a thousand pages of documents, either digitally or, or hard copies, to various entities to to achieve a film. It's just everyone. It, it, it's like porcupines having sex, like on Thank on you. all levels. Like the director, the director doesn't. You know, the director has his lawyer, and the production has their lawyer. And, it, and everyone's just kind of like trying to have sex without stabbing each other to death. So, I mean, that's kind of the way I, I see it. I mean, it's not, it's not mean because we're all obviously all attracted to each other and we obviously all want to have sex together. But, you know, again, I'm the guy who said Jim and the Cruise movie. So maybe I'm not the best. To, <laughs> but, but, I, but I really see, I really see it that way. Thanks, Rose. I appreciate that. You know, to have someone much smarter than, much much smarter than me say no i i i totally understand what you're saying no because you have to go you have to jump through these hoops and it takes time and paperwork takes time because everyone knows that if something in the end screws up that there are legal implications to this because in the end there's probably someone an entity who is laying down millions of dollars in a investment that they want to make sure that everything is protected and 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 you, if you were a homeowner and you were investing, or if you were a business owner and you were investing $40 million in a project, like a building or whatever, you're going to have lawyers involved. Like you, you, you have, it's just a part of it. And, and quite frankly, in the end, it makes everybody play nice together. I, you know, it, it, it is, it, I, it's, it's essential. And to have a good lawyer that you can communicate with and that the production communicates with and someone that puts you as a priority, even as an independent film is a big deal. And there are certain lawyers who work or who are super nice and super generous to independent film. And, and they cherish the fact that, you know, filmmakers who should for all intents and purposes be dead like the dinosaurs are continuing to struggle and make movies out there because the, what you do, Rose, is not cheap. 
your time is not cheap and you can make a lot more money dealing with a lot of other different people. And, um, it's, true. And it's much appreciated. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Thank and, you for and, saying that, Ryan, because you know, you, nobody likes to, nobody likes to pay their legal bill. It's sort of like paying the dentist or somebody else, right? You're like, ugh, I already had to go through the dentist procedure. Now I have to pay money. It's but like, I, I, I feel though, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but I honestly feel, I, I shouldn't say honestly, I believe that it makes me a better producer. It makes me a, it'll make me in the long run, having that relationship and that experience and learning what I do learn from legal, from every movie and my own personal legal representation in the end is making me a better producer because I can make arguments before I go to the lawyer because I've already dealt with it. Not that I think I'm a lawyer, just like I don't think I'm a doctor because my dad's a doctor, although I claim to be one sometimes. As a, I, as a child of a I, doctor, I have to agree that we are basically medical professionals. It, I, I, they make me a better person. And that, and and they went to school for a long time and, and they've been in the business usually longer than I have and they understand things on a level that I don't. Career-wise, they're making me a better person. They're making me a better producer. And that means everything to me. I, I, I think- I, I have to agree yeah. with that. This is where I take a bow, I yeah. think. But I, I, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. So instead of a porcupine, although I love that metaphor, it's very visual and interesting. I usually tell people every deal is like a prenup. We, there you go. There we want to still be in love Much by the time here. we finish the documents because now we're going to begin our life together. But, but so we can't break the relationship, but we also have to anticipate what if, what if it goes off the rails, right? What if? So yeah. that's- What are the problems? Yeah, what could, what could potential, and what, and you know, I have to tell you, the way we grow these agreements, that's why they get so long, is because we see so many times we're like, oh, now I want to put it on a streamer. <laughs> Can we do it? And then, you know, right. that's why you've got, you know, language like in any and all media, now known or hereafter created. Right, because we don't to know what's the end of time in the universe. Yeah. So, so, and what is the what and and is the universe really bigger than worldwide? Like, hmm, interesting. I don't know. But now we say the universe. Okay, thanks for joining us for part one of Entertainment Attorney Rosemead Hart's exciting interview about the tricks of the trade for legal eagles in the entertainment business. Join us next week for part two where she continues to school us and share her influential film, John Badham's War Games, 1981 classic, a Gen X original about the fears of nuclear war told through 8-bit Atari games. Join us. Next Chapter Podcasts.